0: being our, our, our king and the one who cried out, it is finished on the cross. And now we get to in, in, enter into what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, Lord, we, we cover an important subject today. Grant us the grace to to understand and to believe. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we've been looking at uh, what a, what a disciple is. We've been trying to figure out a profile of, of a disciple, the characteristics of discipleship. Uh, and so the, on your sermon page, I've listed them on the left side there. Uh, they are, these, these eight topics are coming from uh, a commentary on Mark's gospel uh, by a guy named Hans Bayer, who's a professor at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, the book is amazing. If you never imagined yourself reading a commentary that might be what pastors do or scholars do, that kind of thing. I would encourage you to get this. I'll, I'll send you a reference for it. And uh, it's a fantastic book. And so these eight subjects I began to think about, wouldn't these be great as a, a sermon series? So it's kind of a topical uh, series we're doing. And we're looking at two texts now, Mark 2 and, and Mark Mark uh, 10. Today we're talking about Humility. Humility. Uh, and uh, as I've been studying this subject, it's a very difficult subject to sort of hit directly. Uh, be humble. <laughs> um, uh, I have a couple of books on the subject be, uh, of humility, and they're full of good biblical wisdom, but um, just sort of avoid pride and uh, here's what a humble person does, that kind of stuff. And I've always been intrigued, with how do we get underneath this subject so that we're sensing the, the grace that produces that humility. How do we get to the, to the heart chemistry that produces humility? Um, clearly, the, the Bible speaks about uh, dangers to pride and dangers of pride and humility. It, these are subjects and they're verses that could be tossed out. But I'm interested in how does this become functional? How do we, how do we get traction in our hearts so that we will be humble and love being humbled. So here's kind of the outline rather quickly. Uh, humility looks like a relational virtue. Humility looks like relational willingness. And humility looks like relational vibrancy. Uh, I, I really believe that if we get a hold of the grace of the gospel, there will be a power and there will be a, a change of character in us. So, uh, take a look then um, with me at this passage in, in Mark 2. Um, it is a familiar passage uh, to us. I would think that Jesus is having dinner uh, with uh, tax collectors and, and sinners. Uh, those are the two categories that Mark mentions here. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the house of Levi, Uh, And uh, Levi, of course, is the one who becomes the one we know as Matthew. And Jesus takes a tax collector who was despised, uh, a Jewish man who was despised by the Jews of his day because he had been cooperating with Rome uh, and working on behalf of Rome to collect taxes. And um, there also was very likely to have a, a hierarchical structure. So there was the average tax collector And then there's the real boss of the tax collectors. And it's likely that that Matthew was like a big wheel, boss-level tax collector. And so probably even more despised that he had sort of sold out his Jewish heritage, etc. Well, Jesus is having a party. uh, And there's an indication that Jesus is really the host. He's the planner of the party uh, at Matthew's house. Well... uh, Throughout Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been doing some, some pretty bold things that are rattling the, the religious authorities, and this certainly does rattle them. And I would pray as we just look at this uh, text that we would not just sort of look down on the Pharisees and go, oh, wow, they're the bad guys, or sort of think, okay, Pastor Todd, I'll try and be more humble as a result of listening to the Bible today. But I would ask that we would really pause to say, whoa, what's underneath Jesus' statement that he has come not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. He has not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. You see, this is the re- the reaction that Jesus had, that the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees have is a reaction of how can he be a holy man a teacher of the law and they're hearing that he is messiah how can he how can he associate with outcasts how can he be with those who do not meet our standards do not keep our laws and Jesus is declaring by his having table fellowship with these sinners and tax collectors, he's declaring something about them. They have sought out Jesus to become whole. They are aware that there's something wrong with their lives. They do not measure up even to their own conscience. They are weighed down with a sense of sin. They've come to be with Jesus to be made Whole, and Jesus is unashamed to be with them. Now, the the Pharisees and their scribes had a way of looking at God's law. Uh, even though, as there were six hundred and thirteen commands in the Old Testament, if that's not enough, uh, they would add their own traditions to God's law, and they added a a number of things related to food and food, the eating of food and the, the washing of your hands and, and sort of the ceremonial steps that one has to do just to have, have lunch. And Jesus uh, is now doing a number of things. He is, he is with people who have disregarded their, ceremon- their, their traditions. That's the sinners. It's, it's kind of unusual. Some people were actually called sinners. they were categorized by the scribes of the Pharisees. They were categorized as sinners because they did not adhere to their own traditions. They were outcasts. And they are following Jesus. In fact, Mark gives us the indication that there are lots of them. And Jesus is communicating something remarkable what was anticipated was this, that the Messiah, when he arrives and when he sets up his kingdom, there will be a great banquet. And uh, those of God's people will be brought to this banquet and celebrate the arrival of Messiah's kingdom with him. It's interesting that Jesus is now having a celebration, a meal with with people and what he is communicating and the the pharisees are picking up on this this is an action of messiah they understood that the feasting associated with the messiah was a kingdom feasting that these people who are with jesus are being considered part of the kingdom it's not just as having a snack with jesus it's a message of Jesus is including the likes of these people. And so he gives this well-established proverb, it is not the well who need a physician, it is the sick. And then if that's not enough, if that, and who can argue with that? Uh, of course, that's, that's true. Uh, the only people that doctors usually see are people who are, are sick then Jesus clarifies the well-accepted proverb, I have not come to call, I as Messiah, I as the host of the banquet, I have not come to call the righteous, they're not part of, they're not on, on Messiah's agenda, I've only come to call the unrighteous. And so as I think about humility, humility starts with watching Jesus. Humility is this relational virtue that must have always existed within the Trinity. Within this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this mysterious one God, three persons, there has always been in existence a quality of humility within these three persons. And what is on display now at the meal in Levi's house, what's on display is the willingness of the Father expressed in the, the welcome of the Son. God is merciful to those who have no record of achievement morally. Those who look to Jesus to be made whole are always accepted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This relational virtue is flowing from Jesus. And I have stated here that this humility in point number one, it's the relational virtue that starts everything. I would just suggest to us that that the, the relational virtue has always existed within the within the Trinity, and now it's on display in, this, in life. The, the Son has always <clears throat> exhibited this relational virtue to the Father's agenda. And now it's on display in, in Levi's house. The Father's agenda is, go. Find those who cannot make themselves clean. I am glorified by this mercy. Jesus reverses the structure of our world. He turns it on its head. Isn't it the accomplished, the powerful, the righteous who are included, who are invited? Those who have achieved much? Aren't they the ones who are given special banquets? Aren't they the ones who are given special invitations to attend special events? What about those who have not done anything? What about those who are aware that they don't qualify to see how Jesus is turning the way we all operate on it on, on it, on on its head. And of course he's turning legalism on its head as well. And this relational virtue is flowing from the Trinity embodied in the, in the, in the life of Jesus. And of course it flows from Jesus into us. We are those who have been invited who do not have righteousness. We are those who had the law weighed down upon us, and we are the ones who know that we don't qualify. If you're not a Christian here today, I hope that you sense that vibe from us. You see, we were all desperate for Jesus to wake us up to our need. Jesus was the one who caused us to see that we needed him. If you are righteous, then you don't look anywhere else but to yourself. And what has happened to us is really quite remarkable. A realization has come over our hearts that though he knows me through and through, he is not running from me. He wants to be with me. Even though he knows me through and through, he wants to be with me. He would enjoy eating with me. To be known and to be loved, that's the stuff of dreams. To be fully known inside, like your real unrighteousness, like your what you may know of your own sinfulness. Who can accept me? Who can receive me? If you really think about it, you would be afraid to even reveal that news to yourself. And yet, Jesus looks right at us and he brings us and says, you, you come, you outcasts come. I have a heart for you. Jesus extends the open heart of his heavenly father in hospitality to people who are aware that they don't have anything to qualify them. Now, can you see how this is a foundation for humility? It flows from the heart of Jesus. There's a softness to this. How does this relate to us? Well, watch Jesus. And as you watch Jesus, there will be a softness that comes over you. You you just can't watch him without... Your own rules aren't going to be affirmed. Your own way of righteousness isn't going to be affirmed. You're... You are going to be. It's going to be revealed to you how much you need Him, and you will begin to embrace this gospel, and it will create a culture, a culture, a vibe, a way of being around you. You, you will take on the characteristics of the one who has brought you to the banquet. You see, we are what Jesus is doing. He is forming a community of disciples. He's forming a people for himself, and one of the core qualities is humility. Well, this leads us then, secondly, to humility as the relational willingness, not only just the relational virtue, but the relational willingness that establishes everything. Turn over to Mark's gospel. If you have it there in your worship folder, you can find it quickly. Verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. A classic verse. Um, perhaps the theme verse for the Gospel of Mark. I want to start here, and then we're going to jump back to verse 44 about the idea that we are to be servants and slaves. It's been said that when you're training people in core values, uh, leadership, you are the pace setters of the core values. You can't be selling Fords and driving a Chevy. And so you have to really believe and embody what it is that you are all about, what your company is about, what uh, what your branch of the military is all about. And in Jesus, there is no inconsistency. Jesus is willing to be humble all the way to the the end of his life, to give his life. He's willing to serve his heavenly father's purposes all the way to the cross. He's going to deliver those who cannot purchase themselves. He's going to, the image of Him giving a ransom is essentially like a prisoners of war, right? An exchange of prisoners, right? For some five of our prisoners, for five of theirs kind of thing. Well, when someone needs a ransom, this means that they are in a situation they can't rescue themselves. A payment needs to be offered. And Jesus here in verse 45 of chapter 10 understands the task, and he's willing, his humility is willing humility. He's willing to take whatever steps are necessary. He takes up where the first Adam said, no more, I will not obey anymore. He establishes this love for people in the very body that he gives for them. And this establishes everything. Everything, what do I mean by that? The new heavens and the new earth are founded upon the humility of Jesus. The future, the future is not founded upon some gathering around a conference table at Microsoft or the future, some powerful group in New York City. The future is being brought about by someone on a trash heap, on a cross, outside of Jerusalem, buried, uh, and, and buried as a common criminal and, and sort of cast aside and forgotten the future of the world the cosmos itself is founded upon this humble person his relational willingness now as we watch him do you think that relational willingness will start functioning in us that's what happens now what does this mean for us it means that if we have been loved so well, we will take on courage. We will take on humble tasks. We will see that nothing was beneath Jesus. And so we will also begin to take on the tasks of the kingdom and serve. Mark 10.45 undercuts all our complaining about people. Jesus was willing to die for people. Nothing moves in the kingdom without this humble willingness. Nothing. It won't work in the church. Without this humble willingness, it's just not going to work. Jesus was not a reluctant son who needs some sort of incentive to have his heart stirred for obedience. Parents, have you ever felt that? If you obey, give you a cookie. Right, You're talking to a reluctant heart. Reluctant. This was a willing heart. That's the, the heart chemistry of the gospel produces a willing heart. As we've often said here, the preacher can put pressure on the heart two weeks, three weeks, right? Last week, I was all, all, I was all on you about greeting people. Remember that? It was thundering through the, pul- the pulpit air, right? Well, how long will that thundering last? And well, how long will that work in your heart? Of welcoming people in church, right? Extending the love and hospitality to people? Well, you just might be afraid of me. And for a couple of weeks, you might do it. But what about this humble willingness to serve that comes from being so well served. Yourself, do you sense it? Do you understand it? I mean, is it vibrant to you? Is it? Is there an astonishment? I have been served this well. Think about this. Think about that. You have. You have. Someone important has come to your house. Now that the importance of that person sort of floods your heart. And you don't really think that much about preparing the meal, getting the table ready, cleaning the house. It's sort of like it feels a bit, it's because of the importance of this person, the, the person's value in your heart. You see, it's a joy. You are honored by their presence. That's the heart chemistry that as we watch Jesus begins to be produced in us you mean i was i was honored by the most by the one who should be honored i was honored by the one who should be esteemed and he was willing to do this for me no response on my part should even be i shouldn't even gain i shouldn't be i shouldn't draw attention to myself for serving him so humility is a relational willingness. Do you sense that in your marriage? Marriage is it's a really rough go when there's not humility. It's a really rough go when there's not mutual serving of each other. Really rough. Now, this leads us then, humility as relational vibrancy. Um, take a look at verse 44. Verse 44 Uh You have heard that it is said or known among the Gentiles. It says, look at verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He puts it this way, verse 44 who would be first among you must be slave of all. This is the, a relational vibrancy where everyone is serving each other. This is how life in the church is supposed to be. Um, we often wonder, um, how does a church work? Who's in charge? Who's got authority here, right? Who's got the power here, right? Maybe you take bring that from your work, organizational structure, right? Top-down management, right? Who's making the calls here? That's kind of how the world works. This thing will never take off unless there's vision and authority and, right? And Jesus says, that whole, that whole way of thinking needs to be reversed. For even the Son of Man didn't come to boss, demand, assert his will, completely yielding his will to his heavenly Father. Amazing. And it will not be among you. The power structures of the world will be different. There will be no power structures in the church in that sense. You will serve each other. You will be slaves to one another. Jesus envisions a society of servants. Francis Schaeffer called the love among the church, the love that we express to one another. Francis Schaeffer, an influential theologian and writer in the 70s, he said that this was the final apologetic to the world. When Jesus says in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the final apologetic. This means that the the community in which a church finds itself can observe whether or not Jesus rose from the dead by the humility of servants within his church, the love that's expressed is the opposite of entitlement. And you see this worked out in the, in the lives of those who follow Jesus. For instance, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Even though Paul was given an amazing title, the office of an apostle. He's like, what am I doing here? John the baptizer, when he got close to Jesus and realized that Jesus was going to be baptized by him, he said, whoa, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. Peter in Luke 10 said depart from me for I am a sinful man what must follow this radical acceptance called justification by faith alone what must follow what must necessarily follow you can't get close to Jesus in these gospels you can't receive and believe upon Jesus for your justification without the call of humility being embraced by you. It's the flow of all who understand the gospel. Anyone who is prideful, asserts themselves, demands respect, uh, has to argue with people, always fighting. They have not understood the gospel. Flat out. They are asserting their will. They must be respected. They must be listened to. They can't take the second place. They can't take the third place. They do not understand justification by faith alone. I am honored because the blood of Christ was shed for me. I have been served so well. This produces a relational vibrancy among us. The strong foundation in justification leads to a humility and a freedom. Now we have the disposition, the attitude of heart. I've been loved so well. I can serve his bride, the church, in this servant-slave society that Jesus envisions and brings us into close proximity to each other. This is discipleship. This is discipleship. Let's pray. Lord, there is within the Trinity a willingness to be merciful. Thank you for showing us in the life of Jesus. Thank you for giving this to us in justification by faith. And now show us your mercy by feeding us that we could be brought to the banquet or at least the anticipation of the banquet in the Lord's Supper. O oh Lord, in humility we receive the work of Jesus for us. In his name we pray. Amen.